my mother is crazy. I don't think you thought that was going to be the way tonight was going to start. But uh, if you know my mom, my mom is crazy. I love her to death. Um, she works up at LCO and North LaRose and South LaRose and Cutoff Elementary. Uh, she might look like she's just like the quiet lady in the front who works in the little office, but she is crazy. And if you know her, you know what I'm talking about. Um, my mom is a, uh, is, a good, is a good Catholic woman from the bayou. Um, there are two stories that I love to tell people to express how crazy my mother is. The first one, this has a point, so bear with me, all right? The first one, though, um, when I was a kid, I had a tendency uh, to, to sneak toys into church with me. Um, we were that family that we had a spot in church. It was when you walk into St. Mary's, in the back, back section, first row, off to the right, you knew where to find the Matherns, all right? And if anybody was in our seat, we were like praying through them. Not like for them, it was like, mm-hmm, get out. But no, so we would, we would just kind of sneak in behind them and then pray through them like a bullet, right? So we, would, we, were, we had this spot in the church. Well, I remember we would go to church every week. And I used to, I, I, I love Hot Wheels toy cars. So I would bring Hot Wheels cars with me. Well, my mom told me one day, she said, all right, you're getting too old. You're going you're gonna to stop bringing the cars. And I said, okay, that's fine. So the next week when I showed up, I was ready to go. I had my car hidden in my pocket this time, not in my hand. And I was ready to roll. And on the way out, she stopped me and she said, rabbit ear your pockets. Pull your pockets out. She caught me with two cars. She said, put them on the counter and let's go. So the rest of that week, I was sitting in Mass and I was very attentive to the priest. Not really. All I did was sat in the pew and tried to figure out how is it that next week I can get a car in this church, right? And I figured it out. It took me a week, but I figured it out. The next week we go. We go to church, I got my car, I got my contraband into the church, we're ready to go. We sit down for the readings, and I'm like, a, I'm, I'm just staring at my mom. And my, my hand starts to just walk down my leg, and I reached in my sock, and I pulled out my toy car. Now, at this point, my mom could have reacted a couple of ways, and when I had the car, she was staring at me, seeing this happen, knowing something was up, so I put the car in my hand, and I gave her a look like this. Gotcha. Right? My mom could have reacted two ways. Either you take the car and you throw it away, and it got melted down in the church, or she could do what she did. She tapped me in the leg, and she said, have fun. And I was like, all right, I'm going to have fun. I, that's a weird response, but I'm going to have fun. So I was playing with the car up and down the pew. They, like, let me go. And that was the most freedom I ever had. On our way up, we go to communion, and we're on our way back to the church, and at a certain point, we would turn to go back to our pew. And when we went to turn, I felt a hand on my shoulder shove me forward, and we walked out after communion. Now, we never did that, right? The Judas shuffle, what we called it. We never did the Judas shuffle. Like, we never walked out after communion and went home. I knew I was in trouble. <laughs> there was something bad about to happen. I got my butt whipped from the door of the church to the car, got in the car. Now, we live three houses away from St. Mary's, right? I got, we got out the car. She hit me when we got out the car, 
put me on my knees in the driveway and told me, you don't get up until every one of those cars has left the church and went inside. Now, at this time, St. Mary's people used to stick around after church and talk and visit and catch up. And I'm a five-year-old kneeling down in the driveway, in, on a gravel driveway, get, mind you, screaming at the people at the church, go home! Go home! Crying, go home! My mom walks out, shut up. Go home! Just be quiet. So my mom's nuts. Second story that tells you that my mom's nuts. And I, I, I'm sorry, and my mom, I asked her for permission for both of these, so it's okay. Um, the second story, though, that tells you my mom's nuts. Um, she was on her way to work one morning. We have, uh, in Raceland, if you know, on the north side of Raceland, there's a red light. Um, we live on Highway 1, so she's on her work into Lockport. She's driving, she's taking the time. She's got 45 minutes to get to the office, plenty of time. She's on her way to work, and she sees that the light turns yellow. So she eases on her brake and comes to a nice, gentle stop. The person behind her apparently was running late to work. And when that guy was running late to work, he had to slam on his brakes because he thought she was going to just speed up and go through. So he locks up his brakes. She looks in her rearview mirror, and he comes to a screeching stop right before impact. Now, she was kind of bracing herself, so she's staring in the mirror at the guy behind her. The guy behind her uh, calls her a name that had a, a, a word that started with an F and a word that started with a B. So we're going to say a fire trucking be beach ball, okay? And she sees these words mouth in her rearview mirror. Again, there's two ways you can react to that. Either fire truck and beach ball could sit in her car and just go about her day and be angry at the guy. Or you could do what my mom did. Puts the car in park. Opens the door, pops out, and makes sure to let him know how much of a fire truck and beach ball she can be at 7.30 in the morning. She got three phone calls that afternoon asking her, I think that was you cussing out somebody in the street. It's Highway 1. It's not a regular street. <laughs> so my mother, just to let you know, she can be nuts. I will be honest, though. I, I, I give my mom a hard time, and she becomes the subject of many of my homilies, as many people know. Um, but that same attitude of being, quote-unquote, crazy, that same attitude, that same kind of... Um, that. that that, good, that, that same energy that sometimes comes out as the crazy came out a couple of times in a, in a drastic way that was crazy, but in a good way. When she was working, uh, one of the, one, whenever she was working, she started working for the school system at one time. Um, there, was a there was a family that she noticed, that there was this group of kids that would come to Mass. I mean, they would come, to, they would come into the school, and they were often running late, and she often noticed that they didn't have clean clothes on. Over the course of a, of a couple of months, she realized that they were really on a hard time. Father wasn't in the picture. Mother was, was kind of aloof. Being raised by grandparents. Like, there was a lot of different details about these kids' life that was just really, really hard. 
The, the crazy in my mom said, okay, these kids, especially around the Christmas break, need something special. So my mother and I and my sister and my dad basically bought them Christmas. Got to play Santa Claus. And it was because Mrs. Claus herself was a little bit crazy. Those kind of things, the, the, the crazy, the fun stories, right, sometimes come out a little bit more. But that kind of crazy, right, the kind of crazy in a good way, I have to say is the same crazy that God shows us. It's the same nonsensical, illogical kind of love that God has for us as well. That God, in a lot of ways, can be seen as nuts. Because he would, he would do what he's done to love me. But he can do what he's done to love any of us here. Because I don't know about you, I'm sure everybody here, I know South Lafouche is a lot of holy people and a lot of good people, um, and I'm Central Lafouche trash, but I, I promise you, I, I have a good feeling that I have a spotted past that doesn't deserve the way that God wants to love me. Stuff, mistakes I've made back in high school, college, seminary, last week. It, it, God has every reason not to want to love me. But he's a little bit crazy, and I've got hope because of it. All of us, that's our story. Because there's something crazy about a God whenever we get fed by his son dying on a cross for us. Pope Francis, this year, to kick off Lent, every year the Pope comes out with a message about Lent. Kind of a theme for the church to be praying for throughout the Lenten season. And Pope Francis decided that this year the way that he was going to guide the church to pray was going to be an invitation, very simply, let us be reconciled to the Father. Let us, let the, let the entire church, let each of us individually be reconciled to God the Father. So as I was thinking about and praying about what to talk about tonight, couldn't help but think, well, let's go to the place that I find has the most to teach us about reconciliation. Has the most to teach us about forgiveness, about healing, and about coming to God and being reconciled to the Father. The main chapter we're going to focus on tonight from Scripture is chapter 15 of Luke's Gospel. And there are three stories, there are three images that we find in Luke's Gospel. The first one is the lost sheep. The second one is the lost coin. And the third one, probably the most popular one, is the lost son, also known as the prodigal son. So tonight, as we break open this theme of being reconciled to God, being reconciled to the Father, let's dive in right there. First part, we'll find, we'll find the lost sheep. Now the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to him, 
And the Pharisees and the scribes murmured, saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them. So he told them this parable. What man of, what man of you having a hundred sheep, if he has lost one of them, does not leave the ninety-nine in the wilderness and go after the one which is lost until he finds it? And when he finds it, and when he has found it, he lays it on his shoulders rejoicing. And when he comes home, he calls together his friends and his neighbors, saying to them, Rejoice with me, for I have found my lost sheep. Just so I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over ninety-nine righteous persons who have no need of repentance. What Jesus, when He says this, let's break down what He's saying. He says it as if it's an assumption, right? As if, hey, this is, this is common knowledge. This makes the most sense. It's practically the, the way to kind of think about this. That if you have a hundred sheep and you lose one, you're a shepherd, you have a hundred sheep, you lose one. Who wouldn't? Leave the 99 and go after the one. Think about this for a second. If you are a shepherd, your life depends on the sheep of this flock. Who would not leave 99% of your livelihood to go after the one? He says it as if it's an assumption, but in reality, to be honest, it, it sounds like you're, you're a fool. That's a dumb move. Who would risk 99% of your livelihood to go after the one? Shepherds who, who might be a little bit crazy. Shepherd who might be a little bit nuts. Who might have a little bit too much of a connection to the one who's lost. See, when Jesus is telling us this parable, he's not just saying this as some kind of an economic exchange, but what he's trying to do is he's trying to share with us the reality of God's love for us. That there's rejoicing in heaven beyond any comprehension over one sinner who repents than over 99 who have no need of repentance. Seems like it's a little bit crazy of a shepherd who would leave 99% of his livelihood to go after one. In your life, think about this. Would you take that risk? Would you take a risk of leaving 99% of your schedule or of your livelihood to go after one thing? Most of us are probably sitting there going, no, I wouldn't risk 99% to go after one thing unless they're your, 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 your daughter. Then I'll risk everything. Unless they're your mother who's sick. Then I'll drop everything. See, when God looks at us, He looks at us much more, much more as a son or a daughter than He would ever look at us as just another thing amongst other things. There's a lot of stuff that we have in our life that can clutter it up. But in in, in reality, God wants a relationship with us the same as a father with his child. We hear it today in the Gospel. 
You at Mass this weekend, you heard, you heard the transfiguration. This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. Listen to Him. Second parable. The lost coin. Or what woman, having ten silver coins, if she loses one coin, does not light a lamp and sweep the house and seek diligently until she finds it? And when she has found it, then calls together her friends and neighbors, saying, Rejoice with me, for I found the coin which I had lost. Just so I tell you, there is joy before the angels of God over one sinner who repents. Now in the Scripture, we hear about this coin. The coin, the, the, the equivalent to this coin, right, would have been like thinking of like a nickel. It's a very, very small amount that this coin is worth. Monetarily, it doesn't mean a whole lot. She has ten coins and she loses one. Now, I don't know about you, I've walked out of Walmart, missed my pocket with a penny or a nickel, and you know what? I, I, I ain't got time to stop and pick it up. There's times in my life that I know that I've, I've done this where I've put stuff in my pocket or I've dropped a nickel or it, it slides in between the seat and it's like, it ain't that important. It's not even worth digging for. But what woman, having ten coins and losing one, having ten nickels and losing one, does not turn her life upside down to find it? Does not strip away everything else around to find it. And then once she's found it, has a party, has a celebration with her neighbors to make sure that they know that she found her nickel. I would have to, I, I, I don't know about you, but if I had someone that would send me an invitation that they found a nickel and they want a party, they're going to be nuts. They're probably crazy. And I'm probably not going. But again, Jesus isn't just giving this as some kind of, some kind of uh, we need to cherish the small things. No, 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 no. When he's talking about this parable, he's trying to teach us something about God. Namely, that a value of earth, earthly value means nothing in the eyes of God. So think about it. Very often, uh, when I, uh, growing up and, and, and even in my adult life now, there's a lot of moments in my life, and I think there's a lot of moments in all of our lives, that we could take, we could kind of ascribe a value to ourselves based off of what we do. Based off of how successful or not we are. Right? How much money we have, how much status we have, how much power we have, if we're the boss or if we're the low man on the totem pole. If we have a, if we have a job with, that has a couple of letters in front of our name or after our name. If we have a certain degree that gives us letters in front or after. How, our GPA, how successful we are. Whatever it is, there's a lot of ways in which our world around us likes to ascribe value. And we can buy into this lie that I have to meet some worldly image or some worldly idea of value. But where does the ultimate value come from? Where does the ultimate value of our life 
come from? Where is the thing in my life that says that no matter what you do, no matter what you have done, no matter who you are, no matter how much you mess up or, or succeed, that you are good? It doesn't come from a worldly standard. It doesn't come from a GPA. It doesn't come from, from school. It doesn't come from the, the promotion at work or not. It comes from Him. Because the value that you have cannot and will not change that you are worth Good Friday. When we get to Good Friday, when we think about Good Friday, I know some people are already starting to savor like the crawfish boils. Throw that aside, right? You're worth the suffering, the shame, the hurt, the struggle, the abandonment, everything that Jesus goes through on Good Friday, that's what you're worth. Because the whole purpose of Good Friday is to give us hope to be back in, to be back in communion with a God who loves us. You're worth Good Friday. The first two, those first two parables we hear, it doesn't matter where you've gone, how you've, how you've gone off of the map, how you've taken a left turn when you should have gone right, whatever mistake you've made or way that you found yourself away from the rest of the crowd, God comes for you. And then we see that we're worth more than any kind of, more than any earthly status can possibly tell us. Now we get to my favorite of these three images. Uh, personally, I, I, I think the story of the prodigal son, um, I, enough can't be said about this. And if you want something to pray with for the rest of Lent, just pray with Luke 15, the back half of it. It could change your life over and over and over again. Let's read first about the younger son. And Jesus said, there was a man who had two sons, and the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of property that falls to me. And he divided his living between them. Not many days later, the younger son gathered all that he had, took his journey into a far country. Then he squandered his property on loose living. And when he had spent everything, a great famine arose in the country, and he began to be in want. So he went and joined himself to one of the citizens of that country who sent him into the fields to feed swine. And he would gladly have fed on the pods that the swine ate, and no one gave him anything. Younger son, proud. I'm the, I'm the younger of two kids, and I, I know how it, you can be spoiled as a, as a second one because they messed up on the first one. Uh, I love my sister, but they messed up big time on her. Um, but I, I, I know you can be spoiled. You can feel kind of like the rest of the world is kind of at your fingertips because... You're the cute one. You're the, you're the one that won't mess up because there's still hope for you, right? Nah, I messed up. But anyway, um, now I'm the priest, so I definitely can't mess up. I can't do anything wrong. It's great. But I remember um, 
growing up, well, you have this kind of spoiled attitude. Well, the, the younger son in this, there's two brothers, and the younger son comes to his dad and he basically tells him, Dad, I want my inheritance. Now, what does it mean to say I want my inheritance to him? When do you get your inheritance? When someone dies. Dad, I want my inheritance. It's kind of like saying, Dad, I wish you dead. I want out. I'm tired of living under your roof. I'm tired of doing your thing. I want out. So give me what belongs to me, and I'm going to cut ties with this family and go. So he gets his stuff. Father gives him, gives him what he asked for, and he goes. And essentially what he does is, is he just uses up all of his money. He lives it up, moves to New Orleans, right? Lives it up, does his thing, and loses everything. Pay, spends all of his money, wastes it all. All of the inheritance that he has been given, he just wastes away. Then a famine hits. And now he finds himself in destitution. Now he finds himself in real poverty. Now he has to sell himself into slavery. And he's, he's feeding pigs for a living. In the Jewish world, pigs are a huge taboo. Pork was considered unclean. So for him, he is a servant to the unclean. He's a servant to the, the, the biggest religious taboo that there is. He is the lowest of the low of the low of the low. All of us, every last one of us, in our baptism, have been given an inheritance from God. Have, give, have been given, given the promise of eternal life if we only receive it. How often do we trade an inheritance of, an, of eternal life in for whatever our favorite sin is? How often do we trade in the inheritance of eternal life in to be able to partake of the gossip at work? Or, on the, phone, or the phone call after work? Because we might want to talk about the person we work with. How often do we trade in the inheritance of eternal life in for a quick fix pleasure on a computer late at night? How often do we, do we trade in our inheritance for just so I could flirt with the girl who's not my wife or the guy who's not my husband? So often we trade in our inheritance for things of this world that are passing and that are not lasting. That are temporary fixes. That we think are fixes. But it's really like poison. The story continues though. Because the young son finds himself in his destitution and what does he do? He comes to his moment of sobriety at one point. He says, I'm going to go back to my father. I'm going to go back to my father and I'm just going to beg him to be a servant in his household because at least the slaves in his household are eating. And I'm starving right now. 
He's in utter desperation. And what does he do? He says, I'm going to go back to my father and just beg. I imagine whenever, when I pray with this scripture, I imagine that he's like a kid rehearsing the line. You ever did that with your mom? Where you like, you, you know exactly what you want to ask and you try and like rehearse it. So you're like, mom, can I have another cookie? Because blah, 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 blah. And like, you say it over and over a couple of times, so that way when you say, Mom, can I have another cookie? Because I want to grow up and be 30 year olds and fat, right? No. Um, like, there, there's a, like, I, there's, but there's moments, I think, where kids will like, will rehearse this line. I know I used to do it. So I imagine that this son finds himself in his destitution, and he's thinking of this line that when he sees his dad, he's going to apologize. And he's going to make sure that the words are perfect and that they all come out right. And he, it, we hear that this land is a long way off, so he's got a lot of time to practice. And I can only imagine that as he's walking, he's sitting there thinking, Father, I've sinned against heaven and against you. Make me a, and let me be a slave in your house. A couple more feet. Father, I've sinned against heaven and against you. Let me be a slave in your house. Father, I've sinned against heaven and against you. Let me be a slave in your house. Please, please, please let me be a slave in your house. He just wants to beg the right way. Now this story is a derivative. Jesus would have taken this story. It was a popular story, actually, in, the, in, the, in that, the, the culture at that time. And the, the popularized story, what it was, is that the son comes back to the father, and when he gets back to the father, the father just is sitting there waiting, sees him come up. And the son says, Father, I've sinned against heaven and you, against you. Make me a slave in your house. And the father looks at him and just goes, I don't know you. And sends him away. And it was this kind of proverb of sorts that was supposed to say how just this father is. And he arose and came to his father. But while he was yet at a distance, his father saw him and had compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. Pause button. Uh, I, I don't know if there's, I'm sure there's people here that are hunters. Um, I am not a hunter by any stretch of the imagination. Uh, I, I, I can shoot in that direction, but I don't know what I'm going to hit, right? Like, I, I never was a hunter, but when I, the couple of times in my life that I have gone hunt, I've learned very, very quickly that if something's a long way off, you better be looking for it. If you want to see the deer coming out in the clearing, you better be looking at the tree line. If you want to see the duck, you better be listening and paying attention to a long way off. You don't just happen to see it a long way off. The father sees him when he's a long way off. Small detail. But what it tells me is that that father every day would wake up and sit on his front porch, glass of sweet tea and a straw hat, right? And he would just stare at the horizon waiting for his boy to come home. That he would just stare at the horizon, waiting, looking a long way off. From the moment that he left, went out and said, he's not going to be gone long, I know he's coming back. And just had faith that he was going to come back and would just sit there and wait. And when he saw him, he was filled with so much excitement, so much compassion for his boy, that he ran to him. And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I'm no longer worthy 
to be called your son. His rehearsed line. But the father said to his servants, bring quickly the best robe and put it on him and put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet and bring the fatted calf and kill it. Let us eat and make merry. For this son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And they began to make merry. Have to believe. Runs up to him. Father, I've sinned against heaven and against you. Make me a slave in your house. Father, I've sinned against heaven and against you. It's finally the moment to say it. Father, I've sinned against heaven and against you. And the father looks at him and says, shut up. You're not a slave. You're home. You're not a slave. You're home. Anytime we fall victim to sin, whatever that sin is, whatever your favorite sin is, whatever the, whatever the place you know, the empty well that you know you go back to over and over and over again, anytime we fall victim to sin and we are afraid to walk into the confessional just to tell God, to come before God and receive His mercy, we look like the sun. We're wallowing in our own pity. We're wallowing in our own mess, in the mud and the muck of a pigsty. And God is basically saying, just come back. So often, and I know this, when I was in, when I was in high school, I never feared the priest more than confession night at a retreat. Because I didn't know what was, it, it, it caused me, I had to be vulnerable and say that I was weak, say that I was broken, say that I messed up. And the scary part is, is when we're vulnerable, it may not be received, but I can tell you this, brothers and sisters, that as a priest now, there's nothing that makes me happier than to be able to be like a dad. <laughs> to stand in the place of God, to be able to let somebody come in and experience the compassion and love of the Father and His mercy. Confession is not a place that's meant to be scary and dark and dingy and worrisome. It's a place of victory. <laughs> it's a place of freedom. It's a place of peace. It's a place of being reunited with one that loves us more than we can ever imagine. Right? we got an opportunity to be able to go to confession and if you've been waiting for a while, if you've been thinking, I don't know if this is for me, I don't know if I really want to do this, it's been 30 years, I forgot the words to say, it doesn't matter. Because God's been sitting, waiting for you, not on the front porch with a cup of sweet tea, but in a tabernacle, looking at you, waiting, just begging you to come back to Him. Just begging you to let Him be a part of your life again. I don't care how big the inheritance is that you think you've squandered. I don't care how big the sins are that you think you've committed. None of them are bigger than the cross. Amen? None of them are bigger than Jesus' sacrifice and His love, God's love for you. The only sin that we could possibly say is bigger is not wanting to be reconciled to the Father. We can enter the second son. Now this elder son was in the field, and he came and drew near to the house, and he heard music and dancing. And he called one of the servants and asked what this meant, and said to him, your brother has come, 
and your father has killed the fatted calf because he has received him safe and sound. But he was angry and refused to go in. His father came out and entreated him, but he answered his father, Behold, these many years I have served you. I never disobeyed your command, yet you never gave me a kid, a baby goat, that I might make merry with my friends. But when this son of yours came who has devoured your living with harlots, you killed for him the fatted calf, the biggest feast. And he said to him, Son, you are always with me. And all that, I, my, all that is mine is yours. It was, make, it was fitting to make merry and be glad, for this your brother was dead and is, al- and is alive. He was lost and is found. Maybe tonight, whenever you come, you know what? I, I, look, Father, I go to Mass. I don't commit any kind of great sins. I'm not, I'm not wallowing in my own self-pity or my own hurt. Or like, my sins, you know what? I go to confession once a month. I go to daily Mass. I do all the stuff that I'm supposed to do. Why on Easter are all them people that we never see going to come sit in my pew? Why on Easter are those people going to be to the right in the Mathern's pew? I don't even want to go in. The only sin, the only sin that God can't forgive is the one we don't even bring to Him. The ones that we keep to ourselves because you know what? I'm right. And I deserve what I deserve X or I deserve whatever. I deserve my seat. I deserve to be able to judge those people because those people don't come to church. I do. The only sin that God cannot forgive is the ones we don't bring to him. There's, a, uh, there's an author, uh, Henry Nowen. He's written, he wrote a book about the prodigal son. He said it's called The Return of the Prodigal Son. If you want something good to read this, this Lent, it's not too late, start that book. The Return of the Prodigal Son, Henry Nowen. He's French, so Henry's with an I. Um, beautiful book, amazing book, and what it does is it basically says, if you look at these three figures in, in this story of the prodigal son, if you look at the, the, the younger son, the older son, and the father, You see a progression of who we're called to be in the Christian life. Who we're called to be. Like kind of the progression that that many people follow through their life. Now I don't know about you. I, I, I can say my life laid over that looks pretty similar. Because at one point I didn't care. Not to go into details of sin, but I really didn't care about what what the church taught. I went to Mass because I was supposed to and because my grandmother wouldn't feed me. That was the main reason growing up. But I really didn't care about anything else. I had an inheritance that was given to me by God at baptism and I completely just threw it aside. I'd rather worry more about status or popularity or power or any of these other things before worrying about what it is that God has in store for my life at some point. That's where you are. The story about the younger son probably speaks to you. 
If that's not where you are, if you like, man, that was me at one time, but right now I don't quite sit there, at some point we probably look like the, the middle son, or the older son. We probably look like the middle character in this. The older son. My pew, right? Almost a spiritual pride. I still remember uh, at one time when I was in, when I was in college, I was, had the opportunity to go to the Theology of the Body Institute um, up, in, up in Pennsylvania. It was a fantastic week. And I went because we were preparing a Theology of the Body course at, at LSU. So I was, I was leading this like Bible study thing, and I was, going, I was really excited about it. So I went up to the Institute. I come back, and I remember somebody calling me out like two weeks after I got back. Because they said something in this in our small group, and I just jumped at them. I was like, "Well, no, that's really not it." And I still remember that it was it was my girlfriend at the time. She looked at me and she said, "I'm just letting you know you're not the expert." Ooh, that hurt. <laughs> I just went do all this stuff. I went do all this extra study. I went. I, I, I was doing the stuff right. I'm trying to. I'm trying to change my life because of this. Te- all these things. I'm just telling you, you're not the expert. Ow. Because at that time, I was wearing the hat of the, younger, of the older son. And I, I, I wasn't worried about meeting people where they were. I was worried about bashing them over the head with, with, with the Bible. And at some point in our life, we, hopefully, there's a humility that wells up in us that we would, that we would start to look, start to kind of turn aside the, the, the mentality of the older son. At that point, we get a chance to be able to extend mercy like the father. Think of the dad in this situation. His son comes to him. I wish you dead. Give me my, my inheritance. Okay. Like the humility in that. I would have said, I wish you dead, give me my inheritance. My dad would have slapped the hell out of me and sent me on my way. The humility in that. Okay. Trusting that he was going to be back. Trusting God that he was going to be back. Trusting God that this son of mine is going to come back to me. Even though right now he's lost. Sitting out every day and endurance, just waiting and waiting and waiting for his son to come back to him. How often do we lose patience with those who we love? Mom, dad, your mom and dad, whether they're elderly, whether they're working, your kids. How often do we lose patience? With the model of this father who sat waiting for his son to come back to him. When he got there, grabs him and brings him back in. No questions asked. You're my son. That's enough of a reason to bring you home. You don't have to prove a thing to me. It's enough that you're mine. The older son, who's been here for the whole time, doesn't want to come into the party, like doesn't want to come in and celebrate with us that his brother is home. Why doesn't he get it? 
the Father still goes out to meet him as well. We're going to have time for you to celebrate with you. We're excited about you. I'm so glad you're here with me. But come in. Come in as we're, as we're excited and we're celebrating your brother's return. We're called at some point in our life to go from the younger son, to go from lost and wallowing in our sin. Hopefully we don't, we don't get stuck in some kind of spiritual pride. And we're called to extend mercy the same way that the Father does. To extend compassion the same way that the Father does. Because the reality is, with, with, with forgiveness comes healing. Anytime we seek forgiveness, healing is around the corner. Anytime we receive the forgiveness from God, anytime we receive forgiveness for our sins, healing is right behind it. We look at Good Friday and we might think, man, I, I, that, that doesn't look like healing. But Good Friday gets us forgiveness and Easter Sunday gives us redemption, gives us healing, makes us whole again. To, as we come through this Lenten season, as we continue to progress through this Lenten season, as we continue to kind of wrestle with the ways in which we might be lost, the ways in which we might see ourselves as not with the rest of the, of, the, of the crowd or the flock, or the ways in which we might give ourselves less than the value that we deserve, the ways in which we might be the younger or the older son, The one thing that we know we can settle on is that we have a God who is crazy in love with us and we have a Father who is more than willing to receive us back to Himself. Back into His good graces. If only we would ask. If only we would seek His mercy. My brothers and sisters, this time of Lent is meant for us to be able to meet God face to face. Lent is the desert. Lent is the 40 days in the desert that Jesus spent last, last week in the Gospel. The desert in the Old Testament was a place of encounter with God where everything else is stripped away. All distraction, all temptation, everything else in the desert is stripped away. And we're able to meet God face to face. Tonight we'll have an opportunity to meet God face to face in the Blessed Sacrament. Tonight we'll have the opportunity, if you, if you want, to meet God face to face in the Sacrament of Reconciliation. But God reveals Himself to us and invites us back to Himself. You've been waiting for a while. You don't have to wait any longer. You've been waiting for a while. Take the first step and go to Him. Run to Him. And let Him meet you. Not as a judge. Not as a shepherd who doesn't really care. Or someone who doesn't bend down to pick up a penny. But as a God who's loving. A God who cares and is crazy in love with you.